Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I will be reading The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Introduction by Mr. Pooter. Why should I not publish my diary? I have often seen reminiscences of people I have never even heard of, and I fail to see, because I do not happen to be a somebody, 
why my diary should not be interesting. My only regret is that I did not commence it when I was a youth. Charles Pooter, The Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway. Chapter 1 We settled down in our new home, and I resolved to keep a diary. Tradesmen trouble us a bit, so does the scraper. The curate calls and pays me a great compliment. My dear wife Carrie and I have just been a week in our new house, the Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway, a nice six-roomed residence, not counting basement, with a front breakfast parlour. We have a little front garden, and there is a flight of ten steps up to the front door, which, by the by, we keep locked with the chain up. Cummings, Gowing, and our other intimate friends always come to the little side entrance, which saves the servant the trouble of going up to the front door, thereby taking her from her work. We have a nice little back garden, which runs down to the railway. We were rather afraid of the noise of the trains at first, but the landlord said we should not notice them after a bit, and took two pounds off the rent. He was certainly right, and beyond the cracking of the garden wall at the bottom, we have suffered no inconvenience. After my work in the city, I like to be at home. What's the good of a home if you're never in it? Home, sweet home, that's my motto. I'm always in on an evening. Our old friend Gowing may drop in without ceremony, so may Cummings, who lives opposite. My dear wife, Caroline, and I are pleased to see them if they like to drop in on us. But Carrie and I can manage to pass our evenings together without friends. There is always something to be done. A tin tack here, a Venetian blind to put straight, a fan to nail up, or part of a carpet to nail down, all of which I can do with my pipe in my mouth. While Carrie is not above putting a button on a shirt, mending a pillowcase, or practicing the Sylvia Gavotte on our new cottage piano on the three years system, manufactured by W. Bilkson in small letters, from collared and collared in very large letters. It is also great comfort to us to know that our boy Willie is getting on so well in the bank at Oldham. We should like to see more of him. Now for my diary. April 3rd. Tradesmen called for custom and I promised Farmerson, the ironmonger, to give him a turn if I wanted any nails or tools. By the by, that reminds me there is no key to our bedroom door and the bells must be seen to. The parlour bell is broken and the front door rings up in the servants' bedroom, which is ridiculous. Dear friend Gowing dropped in but wouldn't stay, saying there was an infernal smell of paint. April 4th. Tradesman still calling. Carrie being out, I arranged to deal with Horwin, who seemed a civil butcher with a nice clean shop. Ordered a shoulder of mutton for tomorrow to give him a trial. Carrie arranged with Borset, the butter man, and ordered a pound of fresh butter and a pound and a half of salt and a shilling's worth of eggs. In the evening, Cummings unexpectedly dropped in to show me a Marsham pipe he had won in a raffle in the city and told me to handle it carefully as it would spoil the colouring if the hand was moist. He said he wouldn't stay as he didn't care much for the smell of the paint and fell over the scraper as he went out. Must get the scraper removed, or else I shall get into a scrape. 
I don't often make jokes. April 5th. Two shoulders of mutton arrived, Carrie having arranged with another butcher without consulting me. Gowing called and fell over scraper again. Must get that scraper removed. April 6th. Eggs for breakfast, simply shocking. Sent them back to Borset with my compliments and he didn't call any more for orders. Couldn't find umbrella and though it was raining, had to go without. Sarah said Mr. Gowing must have took it by mistake last night as there was a stick in the hall that didn't belong to anybody. In the evening, hearing someone talking in a loud voice to the servant in the downstairs hall, I went to see who it was. I was surprised to find it was Borset, the butterman, who was both drunk and offensive. Borset, on seeing me, said he would be hanged if he would ever serve city clerks any more. The game wasn't worth the candle. I restrained my feelings and quietly remarked that I thought it was possible for a city clerk to be a gentleman. He replied he was very glad to hear it, and wanted to know whether I had ever come across one, for he hadn't. He left the house, slamming the door after him, which nearly broke the fanlight, and I heard him fall over the scraper, which made me feel glad I hadn't removed it. When he had gone, I thought of a splendid answer I ought to have given him. However, I would keep it for another occasion. April 7th. Being Saturday, I looked forward to being home early and putting a few things straight. But two of our principals at the office were absent through illness, and I did not get home till seven. Found Borset waiting. He had been three times during the day to apologize for his conduct last night. He said he was unable to take his bank holiday last Monday and took it last night instead. He begged me to accept his apology and a pound of fresh butter. He seems, after all, a decent sort of fellow, so I gave him an order for some fresh eggs, with a request that on this occasion they should be fresh. I am afraid we shall have to get some new stair carpets after all. Our old ones are not quite wide enough to meet the paint on either side. Kerry suggests that we might ourselves broaden the paint. I will see if we can match the colour, dark chocolate, on Monday. April 8th, Sunday. After church, the curate came back with us. I sent Carrie in to open the front door, which we do not use except on special occasions. She could not get it open, and after my display, I had to take the curate, whose name, by the by, I did not catch, round the side entrance. He caught his foot in the scraper and tore the bottom of his trousers. Most annoying, as Carrie could not well offer to repair them on a Sunday. After dinner, went to sleep took a walk round the garden and discovered a beautiful spot for sowing mustard and cress and radishes. Went to church again in the evening, walked back with the curate. Carrie noticed he had on the same pair of trousers, only repaired. He wants me to take round the plate, which I think a great compliment. Chapter 2 Tradesmen and the scraper still troublesome, gowing rather tiresome with his complaints of the paint. I make one of the best jokes of my life. Delights of gardening. Mr. Stillbrook, Gowing, Cummings, and I have a little misunderstanding. Sarah makes me look like a fool before Cummings. April 9th. Commenced the morning badly. The butcher, whom we decided not to arrange with, called and 
laggard me in the most uncalled-for manner. He began by abusing me and saying he did not want my custom. I simply said, Then what are you making all this fuss about for? And he shouted out at the top of his voice, so that all the neighbours could hear, Pa, go along. I could buy up things like you by the dozen. I shut the door and was giving Carrie to understand that this disgraceful scene was entirely her fault when there was a violent kicking at the door, enough to break the panels. It was a butcher again who said he had cut his foot over the scraper and would immediately bring an action against me. Called at Farmerson's, the ironmonger, on my way to town and gave him the job of moving the scraper and repairing the bells, thinking it scarcely worthwhile to trouble the landlord with such a trifling matter. Arrived home tired and worried. Mr. Putley, a painter and decorator, who had sent in a card, said he could not match the colour on the stairs as it contained Indian carmine. He said he spent half a day calling at warehouses to see if he could get it. He suggested he should entirely repaint the stairs. It would cost very little more. If he tried to match it, he could only make a bad job of it. It would be more satisfactory to him and to us to have the work done properly. I consented, but felt I had been talked over. Planted some mustard and cress and radishes and went to bed at nine. April 10th. Farmerson came round to attend to the scraper himself. He seems a very civil fellow. He says he does not usually conduct such small jobs personally, but for me he would do so. I thanked him and went to town. It is disgraceful how late some of the young clerks are at arriving. I told three of them that if Mr. Perkup, the principal, heard of it, they might be discharged. Pitt, a lad of seventeen, who has only been with us six weeks, told me to keep my hair on. I informed him I had had the honour of being in the firm twenty years, to which he insolently replied that I looked it. I gave him an indignant look and said, I demand from you some respect, sir. He replied, all right, go on demanding. I will not argue with him any further. You cannot argue with people like that. In the evening, Gowing called and repeated his complaint about the smell of paint. Gowing is sometimes very tedious with his remarks, and not always cautious, and Carrie once very properly reminded him that she was present. April 11th. Mustard and cress and radishes not come up yet. Today was a day of annoyances. I missed the quarter to nine bus to the city through having words with the grocer's boy, who for the second time had the impertinence to bring his basket to the hall door and had left the marks of his dirty boots on the fresh cleaned doorsteps. He said he had knocked at the side door with his knuckles for a quarter of an hour. He knew Sarah, our servant, could not hear this as she was upstairs doing the bedrooms. So I asked the boy why did he not ring the bell. He replied that he did pull the bell but the handle came off in his hand. I was half an hour late at the office, a thing that has never happened to me before. There has recently been much irregularity in the attendance of the clerks, and Mr. Perkup, our principal, unfortunately chose this very morning to pounce down upon us early. Someone had given the tip to the others. The result was that I was the only one late of the lot. Buckling, one of the senior clerks, was a brick and I was saved by his intervention. As I passed by Pitt's desk, I heard him remark to his neighbour how disgracefully late some of the head clerks arrive. 
This was, of course, meant for me. I treated the observation with silence, simply giving him a look, which unfortunately had the effect of making both of the clerks laugh. Thought afterwards it would have been more dignified if I had pretended not to have heard him at all. Cummings called in the evening, and we played dominoes. April the 12th. Mustard and cress and radishes, not come up yet. Left Farmerson repairing the scraper, but when I came home found three men working. I asked the meaning of it, and Farmerson said that in making a fresh hole, he had penetrated the gas pipe. He said it was a most ridiculous place to put the gas pipe, and the man who did it evidently knew nothing about his business. I felt his excuse was no consolation for the expense I shall be put to. In the evening, after tea, Gowan dropped in, and we had a smoke together in the breakfast parlour. Carrie joined us later, but did not stay long, saying the smoke was too much for her. It was also rather too much for me, for Gowing had given me what he called a green cigar, one that his friend Schumach had just brought over from America. The cigar didn't look green, but I fancy I must have done so. For when I had smoked a little more than half, I was obliged to retire on the pretext of telling Sarah to bring in the glasses. I took a walk around the garden three or four times, feeling the need of fresh air. On returning, Gowie noticed I was not smoking, offered me another cigar, which I politely declined. Gowing began his usual sniffing, so anticipating him, I said, You're not going to complain of the smell of paint again. He said, No, not this time, but I'll tell you what, I distinctly smell dry rot. I don't often make jokes, but I replied, You're talking a lot of dry rot yourself. I could not help roaring at this, and Carrie said her sides quite ached with laughter. I never was so immensely tickled by anything I've ever said before. I actually woke up twice during the night and laughed till the bed shook. April 13th. An extraordinary coincidence. Carrie had called into a woman to make some chintz covers for our drawing room, chairs and sofa to prevent the sun fading, the green wrap of the furniture. I saw the woman and recognized her as a woman who used to work years ago for my old aunt at Clapham. It only shows how small the world is. April 14th. Spent the whole of the afternoon in the garden, having this morning picked up at a bookstall for five pence, a capital little book in good condition on gardening. I procured and sowed some half-hardy annuals in what I fancy shall be a warm, sunny border. I thought of a joke and called out Carrie. Carrie came out rather testy, I thought. I said, I've just discovered we've got a lodging house. She replied, How do you mean? I said, Look at the borders. Carrie said, Is that all you wanted me for? I said, Any other time, you would have laughed at my little pleasantry. Carrie said, Certainly, at any other time, but not when I'm busy in the house. The stairs looked very nice. Gowan called and said the stairs looked all right, but it made the banisters look all wrong, and suggested a coat of paint on them also, which Carrie quite agreed with. I walked round to Putley, and fortunately he was out, so I had a good excuse to let the banisters slide. By the by, that is rather funny. April 15th, Sunday. At three o'clock, Cummings and Gowan called for a good long walk over Hampstead and Finchley 
and brought with them a friend named Stillbrook. We walked and chatted together, except Stillbrook, who was always a few yards behind us, staring at the ground and cutting at the grass with his stick. As it was getting on for five, we four held a consultation, and Gowling suggested that we should make for the Cowan Hedge and get some tea. Stillbrook said a brandy and soda was good enough for him. I reminded them that all public houses were closed till six o'clock. Stillbrook said, that's all right, bonafide travellers. We arrived, and as I was trying to pass, the man in charge of the gate said, where from? I replied, Holloway. He immediately put up his arm and declined to let me pass. I turned back for a moment when I saw Stillbrook, closely followed by Cummings and Gowing, make for the entrance. I watched them and thought I would have a good laugh at their expense. I heard the porter say, where from? When to my surprise, in fact, disgust, Stillbrook replied, Blackheath, and the three were immediately admitted. Gowan called to me across the gate and said, we shan't be a minute. I waited for them the best part of an hour. When they appeared, they were all in the most excellent spirits, and the only one who made an effort to apologise was Mr. Stillbrook, who said to me, it was very rough on you to be kept waiting, but we had another spin for S and B's. I walked home in silence. I couldn't speak to them. I felt very dull all the evening but deemed it advisable not to say anything to carry about the matter. April 16th. After business, set to work in the garden. When it got dark, I wrote to Cummings and Gowing, who neither called for wonder, perhaps they were ashamed of themselves, about yesterday's adventure at the Cow and Hedge. Afterwards made up my mind not to write yet. April 17th thought I would write a kind little note to Gowan and Cummings about last Sunday and warning them against Mr. Stillbrook. Afterwards, thinking the matter over, tore up the letters and determined not to write at all, but to speak quietly to them. Dumbfounded at receiving a sharp letter from Cummings, saying that both he and Gowing had been waiting for an explanation of my, mind you, my, extraordinary conduct coming home on Sunday. At last I wrote, I thought I was the aggrieved party, but as I freely forgive you, you feeling yourself aggrieved should bestow forgiveness on me. I've copied this verbatim in the diary because I think it is one of the most perfect and thoughtful sentences I've ever written. I posted the letter, but in my own heart I felt I was actually apologizing for having been insulted. April 18th. I'm in for a cold. Spent the whole day at the office sneezing. In the evening, the cold being intolerable, sent Sarah out for a bottle of Kinahan. Fell asleep in the armchair and woke with the shivers. Was startled by a loud knock at the front door. Carrie awfully flurried. Sarah still out, so went up, opened the door, and found it was only Cummings. Remember the grocer's boy had again broken the side bell. Cummings squeezed my hand and said, I've just seen going. All right, say no more about it. There is no doubt they're both under the impression I've apologised. While playing dominoes with Cummings in the parlour, he said, By the by, do you want any wine or spirits? My cousin Merton has just set up in the trade and has a splendid whisky, four years in bottle, at 38 shillings. It is worth your while laying down a few dozen of it. I told him my cellars 
which were very small, were full up. To my horror, at that very moment, Sarah entered the room, and putting a bottle of whiskey wrapped in a dirty piece of newspaper on the table in front of us, said, Please, sir, the grocer says he ain't got no more Kenahan, but you'll find this very good at two and six, with twopence returned on the bottle. And please, do you want any more sherry? Chapter 3 A Conversation with Mr. Merton on Society Mr. and Mrs. James of Sutton come up. A miserable evening at the Tank Theatre. Experiments with enamel paint. I make another good joke, but Gowing and Cummings are unnecessarily offended. I paint the bath red with unexpected result. April 19th. Cummings called, bringing with him his friend Merton, who is in the wine trade. Gowing also called. Mr. Merton made himself at home at once, and Carrie and I were both struck with him immediately and thoroughly approved of his sentiments. He leaned back in his chair and said, You must take me as I am. And I replied, Yes, and you must take us as we are. We're homely people. We're not swells. He answered, No, I can see that. And Gowing roared with laughter. But Merton, in a most gentlemanly manner, said to Gowing, I don't think you quite understand me. I intended to convey that our charming host and hostess were superior to the follies of fashion and preferred leading a simple and wholesome life to gadding about to twopenny, halfpenny, tea-drinking afternoons and living above their incomes. I was immensely pleased with these sensible remarks of Mr. Merton's and concluded that subject by saying, No, candidly, Mr. Merton, we don't go into society because we do not care for it. And what with the expense of cabs here and cabs there, and white gloves and white ties, etc., it doesn't seem worth the money. Merton said in reference to friends, My motto is few and true. And by the way, I also apply that to wine, little and good. Gowing said, Yes, and sometimes cheap and tasty, eh, old man? Merton, still continuing, said he should treat me as a friend, and put me down for a dozen of his Lockenbar whiskey. And as I was an old friend of Gowing, I should have it for 36 shillings, which was considerably under what he paid for it. He booked his own order, and further said that at any time I wanted any passes for the theatre, I was to let him know, as his name stood good for any theatre in London. April 20th. Carrie reminded me that, as her old school friend Annie Fuller's, now Mrs. James, and her husband had come up from Sutton for a few days, it would look kind to take them to the theatre, and would I drop a line to Mr. Merton, asking him for passes for four, either for the Italian Opera, Haymarket, Savoy, or Lyceum. I wrote Merton to that effect. April 21st. Got a reply from Merton saying he was very busy, and just at present couldn't manage passes for the Italian Opera, Haymarket, Savoy, or Lyceum. But the best thing going on in London was the brown bushes at the Tank Theatre, Islington, and enclosed seats for four, also a bill for whiskey. April 23rd. Mr. and Mrs. James, Miss Fuller's that was, came to tea, and we left directly after for the Tank Theatre. We got a bus that took us to King's Cross, and then changed into one that took us to the Angel. Mr. James, each time, insisted on paying for all, saying that I had paid for the tickets, and that was quite enough. We arrived at theatre, where, curiously enough, all our bus load, except an old woman with a basket, seemed to be going in. 
I walked ahead and presented the tickets. The man looked at them and called out, Mr. Willowley, do you know anything about these? Holding up my tickets. The gentleman called to, came up and examined my tickets and said, Who gave you these? I said, rather indignantly, Mr. Merton, of course. He said, Merton, who's he? I answered rather sharply, You ought to know. His name's good at any theatre in London. He replied, Oh, is it? Well, it ain't good here. These tickets, which are not dated, were issued under Mr. Swinstead's management, which has since changed hands. While I was having some very unpleasant words with a man, James, who had gone upstairs with the ladies, called out, Come on. I went up after them, and a very civil attendant said, This way, please, box H. I said to James, Why? How on earth did you manage it? And to my horror, he replied, Why, well, I paid for it, of course. That was humiliating enough, and I could scarcely follow the play, but I was doomed to still further humiliation. I was leaning out of the box with my tie, a little black bow which fastened onto the stud by means of a new patent, fell into the pit below. A clumsy man, not noticing it, had his foot on it for ever so long before he discovered it. He then picked it up and eventually flung it over the next seat in disgust. What with the box incident and the tie, I felt quite miserable. Mr. James of Sutton was very good, he said. Don't worry, no one will notice it with your beard. That is the only advantage of growing one that I can see. There was no occasion for that remark, for Carrie is very proud of my beard. To hide the absence of the tie, I had to keep my chin down the rest of the evening, which caused a pain at the back of my neck. April 24th. Could scarcely sleep a wink through thinking of having brought up Mr. and Mrs. James for the country to go to the theatre last night and his having paid for a private box because our order was not honoured and such a poor play too. I wrote a very satirical letter to Merton, the wine merchant, who gave us the pass and said, considering we had to pay for our seats, we did our best to appreciate the performance. I felt this line rather cutting and I asked Carrie how many P's there were in appreciate, and she said one. After I sent off the letter, I looked at the dictionary and found there were two. Awfully vexed at this. Decided not to worry myself any more about the Jameses, for, as Carrie wisely said, we'll make it right with them by asking them up from Sutton one evening next week to play at Musique. April 25th. In consequence of Brickwell telling me his wife was working wonders with the new Pinkford's enamel paint, I determined to try it. I bought two tins of red on my way home. I hastened through tea, went into the garden and painted some flower pots. I called out Carrie, who said, You've always got some newfangled craze. But she was obliged to admit that the flower pots looked remarkably well. Went upstairs into the servant's bedroom and painted her washstand, towel horse and chest of drawers. To my mind, it was an extraordinary improvement. But Sarah, on seeing them, evinced no sign of pleasure, but merely said she thought they looked very well as they were before. April 26. Got some more red enamel paint, red to my mind being the best colour, and painted the coal scuttle and the backs of our Shakespeare, the binding of which had almost worn out. April 27th. Painted the bath red and was delighted with the result. Sorry to say, Carrie was not, in fact, 
we had a few words about it. She said I ought to have consulted her, and she had never heard of such a thing as a bath being painted red. I replied, it's merely a matter of taste. Fortunately, further argument on the subject was stopped by a voice saying, may I come in? It was only Cummings who said, your maid opened the door and asked me to excuse her showing me in as she was wringing out some socks. I was delighted to see him and suggested we should have a game of whist with a dummy. And by way of merriment, he said, you can be the dummy. Cummings, I thought rather ill-naturedly, replied, funny as usual. He said he couldn't stop. He only called to leave me the bicycle news, as he had done with it. Another ring at the bell, it was Gowing, who said he must apologize for coming so often, and that one of these days we must come round to him. I said, a very extraordinary thing has struck me. Something funny as usual, said Cummings. Yes, I replied. I think even you will say so this time. It's concerning you both. For doesn't it seem odd that Gowing's always coming and Cummings always going? Kerry, who had evidently quite forgotten about the bath, went into fits of laughter, and as for myself, I fairly doubled up in my chair till it cracked beneath me. I think this was one of the best jokes I've ever made. Then imagine my astonishment on perceiving both Cummings and Gowing, perfectly silent and without a smile on their faces. After rather an unpleasant pause, Cummings, who had opened a cigar case, closed it up again and said, Yes, I think, after that, I shall be going. And I'm sorry I failed to see the fun of your jokes. Gowing said he didn't mind a joke when it wasn't rude, but a pun on a name, to his thinking, was certainly a little wanting in good taste. Cummings followed it up by saying, If it had been said by anyone else but myself, he shouldn't have entered the house again. This rather unpleasantly terminated what might have been a cheerful evening. However, it was as well they went, for the charwoman had finished up the remains of the cold pork. April 28th. At the office, the new and very young Clark Pitt, who was very impudent to me a week or so ago, was late again. I told him it would be my duty to inform Mr. Perkup, the principal. To my surprise, Pitt apologized most humbly in a most gentlemanly fashion. I was unfeignedly pleased to notice this improvement in his manner towards me and told him I would look over his um punctuality. Passing down the room an hour later, I received a smart smack in the face from a rolled-up ball of hard foolscap. I turned round sharply, but all the clerks were apparently riveted to their work. I am not a rich man, but I would give half a sovereign to know whether that was thrown by accident or design. Went home early and bought some more enamel paint, black this time, and spent the evening touching up the fender, picture frames, and an old pair of boots, making them look as good as new. Also painted Gowing's walking stick, which he left behind, and made it look like ebony. April 29th, Sunday. Woke up with a fearful headache and strong symptoms of a cold. Carrie, with a perversity which is just like her, said it was painter's colic, and was a result of my having spent the last few days with my nose over a paint pot. I told her firmly that I knew a great deal better what was the matter with me than she did. I had caught a chill, and decided to have a bath as hot as I could bear it. Bath ready, could scarcely bear it so hot. I persevered and got in, very hot but very acceptable. I lay still for some time. I'm moving my hand above the surface of the water, 
I experienced the greatest fright I ever received in the whole course of my life. For imagine my horror on discovering my hand full of blood. My first thought was that I had ruptured an artery and should be discovered later on, looking like a second Marat, as I remember seeing him in Madame Toussaint's. My second thought was to ring the bell, but remembered there was no bell to ring. My third was that there was nothing but the enamel paint, which had dissolved with boiling water. I stepped out of the bath, perfectly red all over. I determined not to say a word to Carrie, but to tell Farmerson to come on Monday and paint the bath white. Good night. <laughs>